you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? I've never had my shoe come untied in the middle of a worship service, and I'm not quite sure how to handle it. So I'm going to go ahead and tie that before something worse comes upon me and give announcement as well. These tables out here, those are actually now set up for our children's Sunday school class. So what we're going to be doing right after our morning worship service is children, you can head directly out there, grab a seat, don't go to the line in here. That's a trap. Your treats are coming to you at that table. That'll help free up space, help get the kids where they need to be, give us more room. So, with that said, let's do our scripture reading now that my shoe is tied and ready to go. Our scripture reading today, the first one we're going to read is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 19, and it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So then, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then also in the book of Matthew, which is our text this morning, we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 4 today. And it reads, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter the town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost house of Israel, 
and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we come before your holy name. Sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Unworthy servants, unqualified servants, whom you qualify through your precious and perfect son. Help us now as we endeavor to understand the truths of these texts, to see the kind of servants you call and the kind of grace you give. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to job qualifications, some companies out there have some pretty ridiculously high standards. For example, when it comes to these ridiculously high job qualification standards, one restaurant looking for a new waitress posted this in the wanted ad, which said, now hiring, no experience necessary. However, it went on to say that the waitress must be 18 years old with 20 years of experience. Pretty high standard. Another cafe posted looking for a barista, but they wanted one with some serious education. Quite a bit of education, actually, since their job ad, which was just for part-time work, posted that a doctorate degree was preferred. This is a real thing. So when it comes to years of experience needed, some companies, they also have a different kind of a high bar. And here's what one company had. It was talking about how many iOS developers' positions say they want seven-plus years of experience in Swift. How are you going to say that when Swift first released in 2014? And at the time, it hadn't even been seven years. Speaking of other unreachable and nearly or nearly unreachable uh, requirements, one company posted this, and I don't know what they were thinking. Now hiring must have a clue. And I don't know if they just don't realize how rare it is these days to find anyone who has a clue. They aimed for the moon there. When it comes to job requirements, typically, how do most companies hire? They want the cream of the crop. They want the best, of the, be- the best they can possibly get for that position. They want to hire people with experience, people with knowledge, people with intelligence, people who are faithful to show up and do their job. They want the best. They want the smartest. They want the most reliable. However, in Matthew chapter 10, we find something kind of interesting. Jesus doesn't hire his disciples according to those worldly standards at all, does he? No, not even a little bit. For the people that Jesus hired for his disciples, for his job he had for them, were actually completely unqualified for the job. They were definitely not the smartest, as we're going to see this morning. They weren't the strongest, and they weren't the most capable by the world standard. They were not the cream of the crop. In fact, they were the bottom of the barrel. The disciples of Jesus were absolutely not the go-to people you would hire for such a job like this. Which is kind of interesting, because I don't know, I grew up sometimes, and I shouldn't have thought this way, but sometimes you do. When it comes to thinking about the apostles, how do we sometimes think of them? Well, like this, this, like these, oh, they're so out there. They're so above all of us. They're so just lofty and superior to us. They're spiritual giants. We think of them as being borderline biblical superheroes sometimes. They weren't. Not at all. Not even a little bit. 
For Jesus didn't call supermen to be his disciples. He called 12 completely and total ordinary men to do something absolutely extraordinary. And what was that? We just read it in verse 7. To bring the kingdom message to all the earth. This is the most important task in human history. And so in Matthew 10, we see their first practice run at this. We see their on-the-job training begin as Jesus starts to teach them about what this job is going to entail. And here's the thing about God. As we just read from 1 Corinthians a moment ago, God doesn't call the qualified for this task, does he? 1 Corinthians made it pretty clear. It's like God likes to use the foolish, not-so-sharp knives in the drawer. He doesn't use the brilliant and the wise. And so as we'll see this morning, though God does indeed call the unqualified, he doesn't leave them that way, though, does he? What does he do? As the old expression goes, many of you have this sign or you've read it before it, God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. Right? He doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And so this morning, I'd like us to look at the lives of these 12 ordinary men. And then next week, we're going to look at what they did more specifically. But I think by looking at these gentlemen's lives, we have a lot to learn about the nature and the character of the God that we serve. And so when it comes to these unqualified men, we find four types, as I have it broken down here. This isn't from scripture. This is just my breaking down of this. We find them broken down into four major types, the brash, the weak, the dense, and the doubtful. You figure out which one you belong in there. Don't say it out loud, but be thinking it through here. I know which one I'm in, probably a few of them. Let's look at the first one, the brash. When it comes to brash disciples, I think it's pretty fair to put four of them in this group. And which four are those? Peter, James, John, and Simon. Now, if you know anything about Peter, I think it's pretty safe to conclude that Peter could be a pretty brash guy. He absolutely could. Sometimes Peter was kind of, you know that guy who's like the, the, the thinks out loud person? We all have friends like that. Maybe we are that person. But that was Peter. He was the thinks out loud guy, the talk before you think person. For example, in Matthew 17, where we read of Jesus's transfiguration on the mount, which has Peter, James, and John there, the inner three, right, of Jesus's inner circle, the text says in Matthew 17, 2 through 3, he was transfigured before them, speaking of Christ, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And so they're sitting here witnessing this, getting a small glimpse of Jesus' glory or his royal splendor, as is a better way to translate when it speaks of this coming event before this. And in Peter's shock, fear, and awe, he decides to do a little thinking out loud. And he goes on to say, Lord, it is good that we are here. Okay, right, true. That's good, Peter. You're correct. And then he goes on, and this is the foot in the mouth part. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And it's funny because as he's saying this, what does it say? And as he was still speaking, then he gets interrupted by God the Father, who says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right in the middle of this glorious event, Peter's basically suggesting a form of idol worship. Like the one tent thing might have been fine, but not the other two. But that's the crazy thing. He saw 
Moses and Elijah in their form as well. And the whole thing just stupefied him, basically. And there's a lot of instances of Peter being brash like this throughout the Gospels. When Jesus says he's going to die on the cross, what does Peter say to him? Oh, no, Lord, not you. No, no, no. And what does Jesus say back? Get behind me, Satan, because that was not the Lord's plan, not the Lord's will. That was Satan's plan. When Jesus tells all of the disciples that they will abandon him at the cross, Peter basically is, he doesn't, this is my translation, he's like, yeah, maybe those weaklings, I'm not going to do that. Maybe they all will, but I will never do so, Lord. And then when Jesus responds and says, oh yeah, Peter, guess what? Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, which he did. When the crowd shows up to arrest Peter, what does Peter do there? Uh, he's a little bit brash. He's a little bit unrestrained. He starts slicing and dicing like a Benahani chef. And what does he do? He cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus, like Peter, gives him this kind of, you know, imagine this is my visualization of it, probably gives him a little just head shake, like, what are you doing? No, picks the ear back up, puts it back on him. Though Peter was overzealous to the point of being brash, though Peter needed to be taught restraint and humility, what did God ultimately do with this very unqualified person? He made him the rock. He made him the Petros. And what that means is he made him the leader of these other 12. You see in verse 2 what word comes right there before Peter? Which word is that? First. Okay? And it's not talking about Peter being the first disciple who came to Jesus. We know that's not the case. Who, in fact, it was Andrew, Peter's brother, who brought Peter to Christ. That word first, it actually better means chief or foremost. And by God's grace, that's exactly what Peter became to be. So much so that in the book of Acts, we find Peter as the leader in the early church. And when he's arrested for preaching the gospel, he not only refuses to deny Christ, he's been there, done that, he stood before the Sanhedrin and he said, we must obey God rather than men. He preaches a fiery sermon in Acts. It's a remarkable thing to see what Peter ended up becoming. I was reading one pastor pretty heavily this week who kind of helped me put a lot of this together, and he pointed out how the historian Asibius said that Peter stood at the end of his life after having followed Christ for all these days so faithfully. At the end of his life, he came persecution, and eventually martyrdom. And it is said that Peter stood at the foot of his wife's cross as he was forced to watch her crucifixion. And he kept repeating throughout her crucifixion, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And then after she died, he too was crucified next. And as the legend goes and the story of history goes and within church history, he said, I don't want to be crucified like Christ was. And so that's why he was crucified upside down. And so in Peter, we find an unqualified pebble who becomes a qualified rock through the power of God. The next brash boys are the sons of thunder. This is James and John. These are brothers. And James is mentioned here. This is not the James who wrote the book of James. This is a different James. This is not Jesus' half-brother. This is uh, how they refer to him as Big James. All right? The son of of thunder, one of the two. Big James was strong. Big James had passion. 
Big James had a whole lot of zeal, is what Big James had. And when the Lord calls James, his zeal was quite unrefined in the form of strong brashness. After the half-Jewish people of the Samaritans had rejected the servants of Christ that he sent to their town and kind of chased them off, do you remember what James then asked Jesus? He says, Lord, should we rain down fire from heaven like the prophet Elijah to consume them? That'd be great, right? Let's just light them up. A little bit brash. I guess he was channeling his inner Noah there. But how does Jesus respond to him? He rebukes him. No, James, you don't get it. If I rain down fire on the unrighteous, that's going to hit you and your brother right here. He didn't get it. The truth is, Jesus had come to save the world, not to destroy it. And remember, though, James's brother John, he was right there with him. He was equally a son of thunder. And sometimes when we think about John, we think of this kind of, you know, weak, laying on Jesus's shoulder, just dreamy-eyed and just, I don't know, maybe wearing skinny jeans or something. I don't know what he was doing. But he was, we think of him sometimes as being a little bit of a sissy, but he wasn't. John was a son of thunder just like James was. And in Mark 9, we see a little of this thunder crack out as John gets upset with a guy who was going around who was casting out demons. And he's like, wait, 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 you're not in our group. You don't get to do that. And he says he forbid him of doing that, in which Jesus corrects him for his thunderous, narrow-minded approach and points out, John, that's basically points out to him he's being brash. These brothers both had lots of zeal and a whole lot of thunder, which resulted in this brash-like behavior. You remember what their mom did for them, right? What did she do? She came up to Jesus. And she said, Lord, in your kingdom, may my son sit on your right and left hand, which triggered all the rest of the disciples. They're like, wait, why did, what, what are you doing? No, you don't try to get to the front of the line like that. And speaking of triggering the other disciples, that's exactly what brashness can do right? That's what unrestrained zeal can do. Because as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, which is the love chapter of the Bible, he points out that truth with only zeal and no love is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, which is why Jesus had to turn these brash thundering boys into not just zeal, but zeal with love. The Lord did do that. He did change unqualified James into becoming a great and qualified leader in the early church. We know that. Church history tells us about that, and Acts records this. James was a bold, zealous leader who preached the truth with both zeal and love. In fact, we find that he was so zealous, this got him into trouble. Uh, Herod arrested both him and Peter, but he let Peter go finally, and he killed James, actually. So James must have upset him even more. Church tradition tells us that when James was on his way to be beheaded, the guard who was with him was so impressed by James's courage and zealousness that he ended up repenting of his sins and for his involvement in James' rough treatment. And then what happened next is what legend goes, is James picked him up, embraced him, hugged him, kissed him, and said, peace and pardon to thee for thy faults. And then remarkably, that soldier said that he accepted Christ, and both went on to both be murdered, to be beheaded together. James's brother John became a lover of others as well, as his gospel speaks about the love of God. I think it's like 70 different times. I can't remember the top of my head, but it's quite a bit. 
And in the famous verse that we all know, many of us know, it's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John's newfound loving character, going from a brash son of thunder to a zealous lover of Christ, didn't prevent him from thundering the truth anymore, though. How do we know that? You ever read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? He's putting the Antichrist in there on blast for their false teaching. He has no problems doing that. And if you read Revelation, he talks a whole lot about the judgment of God, of the judgment of both the wicked and the righteous. John, the son of thunder, like his brother James, went from being an unqualified man of zealous brashness to a bold but loving qualified servant of Christ who taught the truth, yes, zealously, but also in love. Remember on the cross when uh, Jesus was, was there, he looked down and saw John who was standing by the cross next to his mother Mary, and he asked John to do what? To take care of his mother, in which John did. And after taking care of Mary's mother, John eventually went on to be persecuted as well as they boiled him alive. However, he didn't die because it was not his time yet to die because he still had more work to do. God still had the book of Revelation for him to write. And so because they couldn't kill him, they eventually exiled him to the island of Patmos. And there John did record the book of the revelation of God written in Revelation as an old man. The final brash servant here in our group of four is Simon the Zealot. And the short version of what that means to be a zealot is that Simon was basically in a Jewish terrorist group. He was hardcore. Uh, This was like the Al-Qaeda of the Jewish culture there. And this is not Simon Peter. This is a different Simon. This is Simon the Zealot. See, the, Zion, the, the Zealots here, they absolutely loathed and hated the Romans. They hated Roman occupation so much so that they went around burning, looting, and murdering their enemies when and where they could. Not only would they assassinate different Roman leaders, but they would sometimes take out their own countrymen who they felt had betrayed their nation by working with the Romans too closely which would probably make Matthew, the tax collector, a little nervous that night, sleeping in the near vicinity of this guy. Which makes me wonder, I wonder if Jesus put these guys in the same tent ever. Maybe he did, I don't know. But just like with Peter, James, and John, Simon the Zealot was a very unqualified kingdom servant who, through the power of God, became qualified. To the point, even, where he was crucified for preaching of the love of God as he willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. That's what he was preaching about this God who laid down his life for sinners. Which is a remarkable change if you think about his zealous nature that he had before that. He was a, he was a assassin, basically. He was in a, or a group of assassins he was with. He was a zealot. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. For some of us, we can relate to these brash boys a bit because we too got a little of that brash thunder in us as well, right? Some of you personality types know who you are. We can relate to being brash. We can relate to being truth without love. And for those of us who through the grace and power of God in our brash-like state, uh, as we came to Christ, we have found something remarkable happening within us, haven't we? Like Peter, James, John, and Simon the Zealot, God has begun to change our brass-like character to be not just zealous, but zeal with love. You have to have both. 
Think about this. Love without truth, it's, obviously it's not love, but love without truth isn't even truth. It's not. It's not really, not at all. Why? Because it's said in such a harsh way that nobody can hear it. All it is is a loud gong. All it is is a clanging cymbal. So if you're in this brash camp and you're not embracing the loving side of things and you're going around like a son of thunder, you're not actually speaking truth whatsoever. Technically, yes, but it doesn't matter because no one's hearing it. Now, thankfully, uh, when we come to Christ as brash, harsh-speaking individuals, God does begin to change that. And these past two years, many of us have changed in that way. I've seen God softening my heart in that way. I've seen God softening some of your hearts in that way. And praise God for it. Because God comes along with the power of the gospel and begins turning unqualified servants into qualified servants. What kind of unqualified servants does Jesus call? He calls brash servants. We see that with Peter, James, John, and Simon. But he also calls weak servants, and we see that with Matthew, Andrew, and James. Unlike the strong but brash disciples that Jesus calls, he often calls weak people as well. We see that first with Matthew, and how was Matthew weak? Well, he was pretty weak-willed when it came to righteousness. He was a tax collector. And we looked a lot closer at Matthew several weeks back, but in short, as we saw with Matthew, who was a tax collector, he was basically a traitor to his entire nation. He sold out his countrymen for money, for things, for materialism. And as a tax collector, Matthew knew probably even more than the rest what Jesus meant when he said back in chapter 9, verse 13, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Matthew was a traitor. Matthew was greedy. Matthew was selfish. Matthew was a thief who stole from his countrymen to line his own very pockets. Matthew was a sinner, no questions about it. When it came to righteousness, Matthew was weak and Matthew knew it, which is why when he refers to himself often here, we see, this is the second time now, he says, Matthew, and he adds what to it? Oh, by the way, tax collector. Don't forget that. He doesn't shy away from it. Some of us can relate to Matthew as well, though, can't we? Like Paul, we see ourselves as the chiefest of sinners as we look back upon the wicked life that we lived apart from Christ. And yet, like Matthew, who was changed by the power of God, we find ourselves continuing to change as Matthew changed. Yes, imperfectly, but nevertheless, we find ourselves slowly changing in ways that we know we never could have changed on our own. As an unqualified tax collector, Matthew loved his life and the things of this world so much so that he would commit the most egregious of sins to get them. Our God and the grace of God changed all that, didn't it? How? Changed him to be a qualified servant of Christ. As Matthew came to love Christ so much so that church history tells us that he went to Ethiopia as a missionary, where he was impaled to the earth by spears and then beheaded for his faith. The next unqualified weak servant that Jesus called 
is Peter's brother, Andrew. How was Andrew weak? Well, not weak in righteousness. He was weak more in character, if we can even call it that. Weaker in personality, especially compared to his bold, brash-like brother named Peter. However, what did Jesus accomplish with weak personality Andrew? A lot of great things. A lot of wonderful things. See, in the Gospels, we see Andrew constantly going to the individual, constantly getting them and bringing them to Christ. After, so back up here, Andrew, he was at first a disciple of John the Baptist. And when Jesus came and John points all the glory and all of his disciples towards Jesus, Andrew follows Jesus, spends the day with Jesus, and then goes to Peter and says, Peter, we found the Messiah. So he brings his brother Peter to Christ. All of God's servants are not the lead singer. Sometimes they're the drummer in the band, or the bass. Or they're, sometimes they're, they're the lead singer, or they're the drummer in the band, and other times they're the bass player, or maybe even the soundboard guy. Right? Some of them have secondary roles to kingdom work, and Andrew was one of these secondary roles. He was humbly in the background, and he was perfectly okay with that. The point here is simply that there are people in ministry who often play supportive roles more humble roles, more in the background roles. Maybe they never preach a sermon. Maybe they never teach a class. But without them, the Peter, the James, and the Johns don't do as well as they could in their calling for the glory of Christ. Some of you are the more quiet type. You know who you are, you introverts. You are the more quiet type. And if you're not careful, you know what you can start doing? You can start thinking, you know what? Why am I not more like the sons of thunder? What's wrong with me? Well, God didn't make you to be that way. That's the reality. Being quiet, being in the background, being in a secondary role is absolutely vital and important for kingdom work. So you should never shy away from that. I look here at, at this other little James here, the son of Alphaeus, and we don't know basically anything about him. We know his name, and names have meanings, and there's things we can talk about there, but you know what? Like Andrew, who was in a secondary role, this barely mentioned little James, you know what's going to one day result for him? He too will sit upon one of the 12 thrones of Israel, and his name will be engraven upon the 12 foundations in the wall of the New Jerusalem, right next to Peter, James, and John. Church history tells us that both of these unqualified men went on to be martyred for their faith both Andrew and little James. Andrew was crucified upon an X-shaped cross, which is why many Christians today associate the symbol of the X with Andrew, and little James upon a normal T-shaped cross. And why? Because they were unqualified servants of Christ who became qualified through the power of the gospel. And they would do anything in their supporting role to prop up the name of Jesus. What kind of unqualified servants does Jesus call? Brash, weak, or passive, whatever word you want to use there, and also dense. The apostle Judas, this is not Iscariot, this is a different Judas. Evidently, he went by the name Thaddeus and Levius. Now, to be fair to Thaddeus, or we can call him maybe good Judas, uh, I think it's fair to say that 
he's not the only dense one in the group. Like, if we look at these disciples, they all could be in this category, but it doesn't work for my outline, so we're going to do it this way. But the point being here, every single one of Jesus' disciples could rightly be put in the dense category. But why is he here? Well, in John 14, we find Thaddeus' dense interaction with Jesus, and we see this in verse 21. Here's what happens. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And what? And manifest myself to him. So then in verse 22, Thaddeus, or good Judas, he asked Jesus a question in response to this. He says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Why is he asking this? He's asking this because he still hasn't figured out the messianic plan. He still hasn't put it two and two together that the first coming, Jesus came not as a conquering king, but a suffering servant. It didn't make any sense to him what Jesus was saying. And so Jesus goes on to then explain to him how God manifests himself to people in Christ's first coming. And it's not to the whole world like they thought was going to happen as is eventually going to happen with Christ's second coming. And with Philip, we find a similar dense moment that happens. On the night before the crucifixion, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to ensue. And Philip responds to Jesus after Jesus explains all this. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Just show us that. Just show us the Father and everything will be okay. And then Jesus responds to Philip with this kind of like, are are you serious? You've been with me for three years now and you still don't get it? Here's what he says to Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? For three years, Philip lived looking God in flesh right in the face and was still like, what? Who are you? Still didn't get it. A little dense there, a little slow. Do you know what? Before you get a little bit self-righteous here, are we really any different? Not really. How many of us heard the gospel proclaimed countless of times in our life, but it never clicked for the longest of time? How many of us had the glorious truths of God's word unpacked before us through preaching, through teaching, maybe through a friend, family member, or coworker? And we never really grasped the beauty of Christ for the longest of time. How many of us, even as Christians, have lived or are living Christian lives as we ought, but instead, how do we sometimes live as Christians? As dim-witted, dense, slow learners. Almost like we're like sheep. Eventually, These dense, slow learners did learn, though, didn't they? For as church history tells us, good Judas, or Thaddeus, was gifted heavily with the power of God to heal the sick, and so he was eventually uh, invited by the king of Syria to come and heal him, and on the way, he healed a whole bunch of people uh, all throughout Syria until, church history tells us, he finally reached the king and healed him. He then went on hoping to heal the king's heart as he preached the gospel to this king, who then accepted it and became a Christian, 
which then resulted in all sorts of chaos, which resulted in Thaddeus being beaten to death with a club. Similarly, Philip, he was martyred for his faith as he was impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down until he died. And it is said that his one request was that his body would not be wrapped in linen afterwards like his Lord's, for he was unworthy of a similar fate. And so both of these unqualified, dense men, by the power of God, became qualified and wise servants of Christ. And there's a lesson here for us, is there not? God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the call. And he does so entirely by his mercy and grace. What kind of servants does Jesus call? Brash ones, weak ones, dense ones, and doubtful ones. And we see that doubtful ones with Thomas, Bartholomew, or was also called Nathaniel, and with Judas. When it comes to talking about doubtful apostles, who do you put at the top of the list? Doubting Thomas, right? Which is kind of a not totally fair nickname for him. All the other apostles doubted too until they saw Christ. However, there was another situation with Thomas where he got a little bit mopey and doubtful, and it's in John 11. And so after Jesus decides to go see Lazarus, uh, and he's going to raise him from the dead, what does Thomas say to this? Kind of responds in like an Eeyore moment. He's like, well, I guess we should go with him so we can die too. Like, hey man, lighten up a little bit. It's not that dark. But why did he respond this way? Because Lazarus was in the town of Bethany. And where was Bethany near? Bethany was near Jerusalem, like two miles away. And at this point in the ministry, Jerusalem was danger zone for them. And so that's why he responded this way. And then as we all know, the classic story of after the crucifixion, Thomas is super depressed. He had just spent three years with the man who he thought was the Messiah. And now that, was Messiah, now that Messiah was dead, or so he thought. And so Thomas, he's not with all the other disciples. He's at home loading up on ice cream and chocolate, and he misses Jesus' appearing to the other disciples, doesn't he? And so finally, he, he is with all of them, and the disciples are telling him, hey, we saw Jesus. He was here. You missed it. And he's like, what does he say? Unless I touch the nail prints in his hand and place my hand into the side where Jesus was pierced, I will not believe. See, Doubt had set in pretty firmly for Thomas at this point. But then what happened? The Lord appeared and he said, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. In which Thomas, what did he do? Did he reach out his hand, touch the side, touch the nail? No. Thomas responds remarkably with the bold declaration Behold, my Lord and my God. Some of us are naturally doubters like Thomas and Nathaniel. And though we don't have time to talk much about Nathaniel this morning, you remember how he responded when Philip first told him about the Messiah, a man named Jesus who was from Nazareth. And what did he say? You kidding me, Philip? Anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, if he had done that today, he would have been canceled right there. There's no question about it, because that was a very prejudiced thing to say. You just can't talk that way in 2021. Come on. But do you know what the Lord did with both of these unqualified men? You know the answer, right? He made them what? Qualified. 
exactly what he did. Tradition tells us that the Apostle Thomas went as far as India preaching the gospel where he too was martyred for his faith. Ironically, though, he died by a spear being thrust into his side. And as for Nathaniel, he was martyred in Asia Minor by being flayed alive as he, is, as he was whipped to death for the sake of Jesus, the Nazarene. He found out something did good come from Nazareth, didn't he? And all because he came to know the one and only one who is truly good, the one whose sacrificial goodness takes away the sins of the entire world. Lastly, there is Judas Iscariot, and we know him. He's the betrayer of Jesus, Jesus, and because of his betrayal, nobody names their kids Judas today, do they? He betrayed Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver, which was not very much money. And Judas's betrayal of the Son of God was, I think, by far the most heinous of human crimes. We don't have time this morning to go into all of this, but the point of Judas remains. This unqualified disciple didn't become qualified. He remained unqualified until the point of his death, which was by suicide. Why? What's the difference here? What's the, I mean, they're all unqualified, right? Was Judas like a special kind of unqualified? I mean, like the rest were unqualified, but he was really unqualified? No. What's the difference here? Faith. Faith is the difference. Judas refused to trust in Christ. No questions about it. He refused. Judas refused to follow the Messiah on the Messiah's terms. He didn't want a suffering servant. He wanted a conquering king. And why? Well, why did, why did he respond this way? Well, for one, on the divine side of things, we know, and we don't have time to look at all these prophecies this morning that go all the way back to the Old Testament, we know that Judas was destined to do so. No questions about it. However, on the human side of things, we know that Judas selfishly wanted the gifts, but not the giver. He chose it. He rejected Christ. Judas loved the things of this world and not the one who made all things. And because Judas rejected Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he remained unqualified. Faith in Christ is the only thing, church, that will make the unqualified the qualified before a holy and righteous God. For by grace through faith, God makes the weak strong. How? On the cross, where the strong became the weak. At the cross, Christ, the all-powerful sovereign Lord of the universe, became weak for us. At the cross, Christ, the perfectly qualified righteous Son of God, laid down his life for unqualified sinners. At the cross, Christ, the strong, became weak so that the weak could become the strong. It's really that simple. So how about you? Has he done that to you? Has he changed you? Is he qualifying you? Or are you still weak? Are you growing? Do you see God changing you in ways you know that you never could have done in a million years? 
Now, please notice this morning, I'm not asking if you're working harder at becoming better. I'm not asking if you're working more at becoming more qualified in your own strength. That's not what I'm asking. That's a futile and completely worthless effort. I'm simply asking you if the grace of God is at work in your life, changing you from a weak, foolish, powerless nobody into a qualified saint of Jesus Christ. Is that happening? A saint who, as we'll discuss next week, goes out and boldly preaches the gospel message of salvation that is the only thing that qualifies the unqualified before God. <clears throat> the disciples weren't saints from the get-go. They were brash. They were weak. They were dense. And they were doubters. But by the grace of God, through the power of God, by faith, they became pillars in the church of God, which brought the kingdom message to countless generations. And so too, church, by that same grace, can we also faithfully proclaim the kingdom message of salvation in Jesus Christ, which is a message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, who takes the unqualified and makes them perfectly qualified and righteous before God. Father, I thank you for this text this morning. I thank you for the testimony of the lives of these 12 men we were able to look at, just so briefly though. So Father, I ask that we might learn more deeply of your grace through this. Help this to be humbling. Help it to kill any vestiges of pride that remain within our hearts. And help us also, as unqualified sinners, through the power of the gospel, to come to further see the perfect qualification of Jesus. And help us to rest in his qualifications, not our own. We praise you and we pray these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. You stand with us as we sing our closing song this morning, which is really what all this is about. Amazing grace.